I'm your host, Seth Day. I use he, they pronouns, and you're listening to Rad Child Podcast. All right. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Rad Child Podcast. Today, we are talking a little bit about foster care, um, which personally, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about because it's something I don't know a whole lot about. And as y'all know, I love learning about things. So I'm going to invite my uh, lovely guests to introduce themselves and just do our name, our pronouns, where you're from, your relationship with kids and your relationship with the topic of foster care. We'll start with Sarah. Wonderful. Hello, everybody. My name is Sarah Salzat. My pronouns are she, her, and my relationship with kids is I'm a foster and adoptive parent, and I have been for the last five years, and that's also a pretty big part of my connection to foster care, but I'm also a parent coach that works with parents of children who are in foster care as well. Oh, and also, I, I forgot to write this on my notes, but can you tell us a little bit about the, the makeup of your family, how many kids you have, ages, uh, you know? parents, things like that. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So currently in in foster care, it's very often currently, but currently we just have our adopted daughter and she is 18 years old and at college. In the past, we have welcomed uh, teenage girls and also tiny little boys uh, over the last five years. Oh, and I didn't tell you, I'm also in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My name is Lauren Aiken-Smith, and my pronouns are she, her. Uh, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and my relationship with kids and my relationship with the topic of foster care are that I am also an adoptive and foster parent like Sarah. Right now, um, as Sarah mentioned, it's right now, currently, I have an adopted daughter that's nine months old, and I have one foster child with me who is 19 months old. Um, and I also have a wife, so she is the other parent in the house. Awesome. So you've got the little ones. <laughs> Two little ones, yes. Hey, I'm Jennifer. I use she, her pronouns. I have been part of the foster care system for uh, about two and a half years. And the child who lives with me now is my ninth child. And then my second child doesn't live with me. He was reunified, but he's with me all the time. I actually just dropped him off just now. <laughs> I can't share their ages. I would lose my license for that. But I am licensed for up to 10 years old. And I've had as young as two and up to 10, indeed. And I've had three at one time. And that was a zoo since I have a two bedroom home. All right. So before we sort of get into uh, our topic today, I always ask this question just because we talk a lot about, you know, those kinds of like tricky questions on, on this podcast. So I'm curious if there's ever been a time that a child asked you a question, you know, you weren't prepared to answer or kind of caught you off guard. I think this has only happened one time where I was just so beyond caught off guard that my jaw dropped. But we were standing in the grocery store, which is always a great time for this to happen. And we had a whole bunch of things. It was rang through. The cashier gave us our total. And our she was about preteen at the time, turned and looked at me and my wife and went, do you even have money to buy this? And <laughs> my jaw dropped. And now mind you, she'd only moved in maybe a week, two weeks before that. And I was like, oh, okay. 
uh, and just went about the conversation. He talked about debit cards and credit cards and being able to pay and things like that. And the poor young person at the checkout was just looking at me like, what is happening right now? (laughs) That was the big time. And then I guess the other one was when we met her for a pre-placement visit. She asked if my wife and I were sisters. And I said, no, we're married. And she's like, oh, I don't mind lesbians. And I was like, okay. (laughs) But that would be, that would be the two big ones. Yeah. I feel like that's a key, like a key element to it also is it's, it's never like in a, at a convenient time or convenient place that these questions are asked. It's always like in line at the supermarket, you know, but anyway, um, moving on, Lauren, do you have anything to add? Yeah. I mean, I can't think of a specific question, but when I started doing foster care, I was in my mid twenties. Um, and I will say pretty much any question that I was asked in the beginning, I, I was not prepared for. Kids ask a lot of questions about everything, everything around them, everything that's going on. Um, And I think that over those years, I've become better at, you know, maybe more prepared at answering some of the questions, but just kids can be tough with that. They'll say whatever is on their mind. A few weeks ago, my daughter, we were just sitting there watching TV and she looked over to me and said, what is sex? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And as sex positive as I strive to be, sometimes these things just kind of blow me out of the water. And I grew up in a very conservative household that didn't ever really discuss these things. So even though I determined well before I became a parent that I would be very open about these things and never make it like a big revelation, it still took me off guard. And then I had to try to figure out what, what would upset a bio parent since this is not an adopted child. So I, it's hard sometimes to find the line between what probably they need to know and what would really upset the system. Yeah, I think we we talk about that a lot as like, you know, like educators or people who like when you're dealing with, you know, a kid who might not be uh, your own or situations like that, right? Or even for me as a nanny, um, sometimes it can be tricky in those situations when kids ask you questions because you're like, I know what the answer is but I don't know if it's appropriate for me to give you that answer right now or what information, you know. There's also the added layer that who knows what these kids, when they're reunified, if that is to happen, who knows what kind of education around some of these hard things they're ever going to get again. Yeah, that's totally true. Anyway, jumping into it, starting from a total baseline of no knowledge, if someone, you know, kid, grown up, whoever asked you, uh, you know, what is foster care? How would you explain it? I think how I'd describe foster care to someone who's just like, what's going on is for whatever reason, the courts have decided that a child needs to live outside of their family of origin for a time being. And so they're currently staying with me and they may stay for a day, a week, a month, a year, three years or for the rest of their lives. But that's up to the courts to decide. It's a very good, succinct description. Yeah, I would totally echo what Sarah says. Try to to give an explanation that is um, pretty neutral, but also giving that explanation of the time is really variable and it's variable for each individual kid too. And if it were an outside person asking what is foster care, I might give a totally different answer than what I would give if one of my children asked me or really any child asked me. 
because with the child asking, I might say something along the lines of, well, a parent's job is to keep the children safe. And if the children aren't safe with their uh, families of origin or that where where they grew up in the in the belly is somehow sometimes how I describe it, then they go to a different home that where they can be safe. But when an older person, like just an adult really, would ask, I would probably go into a lot more detail. I mean that that makes a lot of sense, right? Because you know, I I always say you know, you want to answer a question in an age-appropriate way and a kid might not need as much information as an adult does. I suppose it also, you know, depends on where the question's coming from and things like that, which is why it's always good to, with kids, I always say, I always answer a question with a question of like, what do you want to know about that? Or what do you already know about that, right? So I know y'all talks a little bit about, a little bit about it already, but I'm curious sort of how you got involved in uh, fostering children. I got started fostering with my wife, like I said, about five years ago. And I had known since I was a kid that I would want to work with foster kids, either as a foster parent or an adoptive parent. And as I kind of learned what that meant, my answer kind of changed. But uh, we decided we were in a car on our way home from my dad's house. Like, yeah, we're going to have kids someday. And I'm like, you want me to call the agency to start the licensing process? And... We did. I called the next day and it actually went pretty quickly for the foster care system. And that started me not only as a foster and then ultimately adoptive parent, but also working with the foster care system and foster and adoptive parents as a parent coach. We started fostering seven years ago, my partner and I. And at that time, my partner was working at a care home which is for children, which is, um, it had a hospital, like a long-term hospital setting and a daycare for medically needy children. And it also had a foster care area. But there was one child there um, that was going into foster care. And we were specifically, um, did the foster care training to foster that child. Um, she was older though, a teenager, and she ended up going a different a different path, but we had already had the foster care, you know, training and licensing. So um, we decided to go forward with it and just start fostering children. Um, and we do focus on kids that have uh, specific like medical needs. I actually should have grown up in foster care. I had some severe traumas in my family home growing up. And one time my father was talking about foster care because I think that it was kind of around the time when we knew that things weren't right in our home. And he was talking about foster care in such a derogatory way. And if and kids in foster care have to do blah, 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 and like making it sound like the worst thing ever. And just so that we wouldn't ever want to go there. But it was then that I learned what foster care was. And even as like a third grader, I knew that I wanted to be a foster parent. That's been my highest goal in my life since then. And the day that I signed the lease for my home that I have now, I also reached out to the state of New Hampshire and um, signed up to be a foster parent and started going through that process. I think it's, you know, it's amazing how, you know, all of you are talking about just sort of like knowing that that's a thing that you want to do and also like following through and doing it because I feel like there are a lot of things that I know I would love to do and I don't actually so like thank you for this awesome awesome work that you do so sort of jumping into kids asking questions what are you know some of maybe the tougher questions you've had to answer for the kids in your care and how did you respond I think one of the hardest questions 
is we had we had a a teenager that we took emergency placement of and for those who don't know for foster care there's a couple of different levels of foster care and things along those lines and we're treatment foster care which means we take either medically needy or children with higher levels of need which for us is teenage girls with mental health challenges and because of that we generally don't just get kids very very quickly uh, we meet them to make sure we're a good fit but we had known this child. She moved in very fast and we were at the dentist because with foster care, you have to get them to the dentist and the doctor and things along those lines relatively quickly. And we're sitting there in the dentist's office, in the waiting room, and she looks at me and decides that she knows nothing about the LGBTQ world. And that was the exact moment to learn. And, oh my gosh, I think she had to have been 15, 16 years old. And the lady, the receptionist, just kind of sat there and you could tell she was pretending to type because she was going (laughs) to listen. And we sat there for about 25, 30 minutes and we went through what each letter meant and what that could look like, the different people in our lives that fit different descriptions and that didn't fit any descriptions. And I wasn't ready, much like the grocery store, I was not ready at the dentist's office to start having conversations about societal challenges and things along those lines of being a part of the LGBTQ community. But we're also a big fan of meeting people where they are. We had known her for a couple of years and we knew this question was burning And that was a really big indicator for us that at the most inopportune times, she was going to ask the most ridiculous questions, but because she wanted to know, but was also afraid. So it was, honestly, it's one of my favorite times with, with that, with that girl. Yeah, I would say one of the the toughest question that I've had from a kid in my care was one child uh, asked if we were going to adopt him. Oh, that's always so hard. And as a foster parent, uh, at least in my experience, a lot of times you don't really know what's going on with the birth parents or the reunification process or um, what caseworkers are talking about. Um, you might just not know where where everything is at that moment in time and what things look like. And I mean, when you go to court, you'll know like the official goals, but otherwise you don't really know. And so that was a hard question to answer <laughs> um, because, you know, kids want more of like, he wanted a yes or no answer, you know? And this is one of those questions where you can't give a yes or no answer. It's a lot more complicated than that. And so we did some we did some explaining uh, about the complications with that and just not really knowing how things would go, but trying to reassure him that we would try and be part of his life um, no matter what happened. Um, and so hopefully that message got through. That's the important part. It's like sticking with the things that you can tell that are the truth that you do know for sure, right? I think are always are always helpful. I've also had struggles when they ask about their birth parents or the or the parents that they were removed from. When it comes to addiction, they want to know why did so and so like drugs more than me or did my mom still love me or does she still love me or 
even with younger ones, why can't I go back there? It's hard for them to understand because it's all they knew was the chaos and the trauma. So it's hard for them sometimes to understand that that was unsafe and that that's not a healthy environment because that's everything to them is that environment. And I have one kid who had been locked inside their house their whole life. So they don't understand that that's not healthy for a child. And they just haven't been exposed to reality enough to compare with what they came from. And it's really difficult to say, yes, I believe that parent loves you, but they didn't keep you safe. Because then the kid wants to follow up with that. Well, why didn't they keep me safe? And if they loved me, why wouldn't they keep me safe? And it's a lot of that is really, really tough for a kid. All of that is really tough for a kid. And I think like what you were saying about, you know, kids, kids only know what they've experienced, right? Like there, anything can be quote unquote normal to a kid and, you know, to can feel like this is the norm. And I think, you know, that must be really a big shock for them, you know, to sort of find a new normal. I've had similar, not similar, but um, relevant questions from neighbor kids or just my kids' friends of why is this kid eight years old and in kindergarten? And why is, why does she live with you? Why does she call you Momo and not mommy? Or why is she at her mom's house right now? That sort of thing. When other kids don't understand, and obviously it's not my story to share, especially not with another child, but that's difficult even to try to explain that to my children's friends without somehow making my child feel like their story is something to be ashamed of. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, sort of like going right off of that, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but has there ever been, you know, a time where a child, you know, asked a question or made a comment relating to the children in your care? And, you know, how did you, how did you respond? We actually had an interesting situation when we bought our house. So my wife and I bought a house and a relatively conservative suburb of Milwaukee. And when we moved in, we sent little cards to all of our neighbors, introducing us, introducing our pets and letting them know like, hey, we're foster parents, which means you may see different kids at our house from week to week. <laughs> Please don't be alarmed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Please don't be alarmed. And our neighbors, we never really talked about it. So I feel a little bit bad putting them on blast. But the the response we kind of got from them is, what does that mean? Like, whose kids are you taking? And mm. I think that's the hardest one. And I don't know if Lauren or Jennifer ever get this, but that feeling of like foster parents take kids they want. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And so it was just weird moving into a neighborhood. And anytime we went outside, the kids were brought inside. And we're like, no, no, we're not going to take your kids. Oh my gosh. Like you, like you just go to the park and pick the ones you want? Honestly, that's – and Lauren, Jennifer, I don't know if you've had any of those experiences, but some people do think that. That's wild. So it actually took a couple of years for everything to kind of settle down and for everyone to realize like, oh, no, they don't just – take children. The stigma is also there where they think that because it went, once they know we're foster families, they think that we're automatically like 
the lowest possible humans somehow, which sometimes seems counterintuitive, but it's just the stigma that only the, like the gross people who just want easy money will take the foster kids. So they like, they'll take their kids inside because they don't want their kids around our gross kids, you know? Yeah. I was, I was actually thinking I have two nephews and um, I've been a foster parent for seven years and the oldest nephew is nine. So he's been around to meet all of the children that have been in our care, um, which has been nine so far. And so there's definitely been some questioning around well, where where is that kid? Like, where is he? Like, because he was here at Thanksgiving, um, eating with us, and now he's not here. And what happened to him? Um, and so you do a little bit more of that explanation. And I think now that it's happened a, quite a few times, maybe he's understanding a little bit more. But um, that can also be confusing uh, as well for even like kids within your extended family um, because they kind of like have these cousins and then and then they don't. I don't even think it's just kids. Like my in-laws, my wife's parents, when kids are no longer with us, I think they feel it just as deeply as we do. But they were here and they were in our lives and now they're gone and now I miss them. And please tell me everything that – that's going on with them now. And I'm like, I don't know in some cases. So it's just, it's hard. It's not just the kids. I just remember, you know, I mean, the the like closest thing to that that I can even get, which is, you know, I, that sounds like it's amplified by about a hundred is, you know, when I am nannying a kid and then I leave, you know, and it's like, sometimes I don't, parents don't even you know, keep in touch. Sometimes they do. And I, I, there's like one particular kid who I've, you know, been with her since she was like eight months and we still, she's like four or five now, but you know, we still talk and still talk with her parents, but sometimes it's just like, okay, bye. And I never hear from them again. And it's really like, I can't even imagine that it's like that amplified and that's already hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a different direction from Sarah and Lauren, but I found that people want to know so much information when they find out that a kid is in foster care, they think that they have the right to know everything. And I, like, I don't even, it's not my story. It, I don't even want to tell my closest friends what what all has gone on in this child's life. And in, our, in my state, we can't even say that a child is in foster care. So if, if there's suddenly a random new child and they say, oh, is this, are you babysitting or something? I can say, well, I'm a foster parent, but I can't say this is a child in foster care. So that sometimes helps. But even then we get the looks of, and then like even direct questions of, well, why are they in foster care? What, where are their parents? What did their parents do? Are they going to go home? How long is this kid going to be with you? And unfortunately it happens so often in front of the children and the kids are standing there like, what on earth is happening? And they don't, realize I compare it I've never been pregnant but I compare it to when a stranger at the grocery store thinks it's acceptable to go up and feel a woman's stomach I don't understand how people can be that so blatant with their nosiness yeah I think that happens a lot it's interesting like you were saying like it happens a lot when people are pregnant they'll be like is it a boy or a girl first of all I have a lot of problems with that question and this is like less weird and just but like just the fact that people certain things allow 
like feel like an entryway for people just to talk to you. Like I work with twins and people all the time will just stop and be like, are they twins? And I'm like, <laughs> yes, but why is that important to you in your life? Like, <laughs> you know, so it's interesting, like certain things that just people feel like they have a right to ask you questions about. So I'm curious. I feel like, I, I don't know if this is just a thing that I'm like, well, that's not true. I know, I know people um, I'm thinking of one of, particular friend of mine who has been adopted and was in foster care prior to uh, being adopted. And uh, they, they talked about having that, that moment, you know, with their, when they were, I think they tried, they actually used this a little bit as a tool of the whole, like, when they were mad at their parents, they'd be like, you're not my real parent. And I'm curious if uh, any of you have ever, ever dealt with that. And, um, you know, how, how you responded or how you would respond if you haven't dealt with it personally. Interestingly enough, no child that's been in our care has said those words. You're not my real parent. They've never said that directly. More kind of undercurrent, I would say. And more like, well, why is it this way? And why do I have to listen? And what does this mean? And I think sometimes the, like, the direct question, while shocking, you can respond to when it's just a permeated part of interactions. I think it it's a little bit more difficult, but it goes back to my original definition of how I described foster care in general is we have always taken the approach of we're co-parenting with our kids' parents. And so we have that conversation a lot more often. I've gotten this statement quite a few times, um, usually by kind of younger kids, school-age kids, the you're not my real parent. And I will say that it almost always comes out at a moment in time when uh, they're angry at you for something. You asked them to do something or uh, something that made them upset, right? And then this kind of comes out. And as much as I want to engage in a philosophical discussion about what is a parent exactly, I usually try and affirm to them that like, I know I know what you mean. And I, you're right, you do have other parents. Um, that's true, uh, which can sometimes de-escalate a little bit. And then just try and go go on like, you know, I am your foster parent though, and that's what this means. And I can see that you're angry right now. And how can we, how can we address uh, that situation and, you know, kind of move on from there? You know, trying to, I mean, anytime a kid is upset, right? Like trying to deescalate as always, I, you know, helpful. I've only had one kid one time say that to me. And he was upset that I was not letting him wear the shoes he wanted or something. It was something totally random and a total trauma behavior. And he screamed as we were trying to go out the door, you're not my real mom. And I just stopped and said, well, you're right. But I am the mom of this house. And that means that you do have to listen to me because we do have to do blah, 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 blah. I think that even when they're not using the direct words, there's still that sentiment a lot. I've had a child who ate nothing but pizza their entire life until they came to me and like literally nothing but pizza. So every food was a new food. And when we weren't eating pizza for every single meal, it was a disaster in their little life. And (laughs) so I got, they loved being here. They never wanted to leave here, but 
when they had to eat a vegetable, they wanted their real mom and they didn't want me anymore. Or if they had a consequence for something, they wanted their real mom because their real mom didn't have any structure or, and not just that kid, but any kid often, I should say, not always. When they're coming from no structure and they can pretty much do whatever, like a feral child, that they miss their real parents when there's structure. Because often kids don't realize how much they need that structure. You know, I'm sure you deal with that in nannying as well. I was just going to say that sounds super similar to nannying when all of a sudden that'll come out. You know, if I have structure or something, they go to their parent or they'll be like, well, mom lets me do this. Mom lets me do that. And I'm like, oh, well, mom's not here. You know, I would always say this kid really likes wearing his pajamas. And, you know, we have well, we have to wear clothes when we go to school. You know, if you're around the house, I don't care where your pajamas. But when we go outside, we wear, you know, outside clothes. That was kind of the and one day you know I came came back to work and I was like okay you have to put your outside clothes on he was like but mom let me wear my pajamas outside over the weekend and I was like now you're never gonna I'm never gonna live this down now every day it's gonna be like but that one time and he had a great memory you could never bend a rule because he'd be like that one time 10 years ago I'm not even 10 years old but I remember you know it's interesting how that that sort of crossover there especially when they've gone been in several different homes when one parent did it this way and then another different way and another different way, and now they have to relearn a whole new way to do something, it's really exhausting for them. And as long as I can keep that in my mind, remember that this is a trauma reaction, it helps me have less of a trauma reaction. This is a terrible segue, but talking about trauma, I'm curious, you know, obviously, as we've been talking about, right, um, uh, kids in foster care often have suffered a lot of trauma and you know how do you sort of help them cope with that and heal from those traumas for us uh well we have a lot of therapy in our home <laughs> a lot of therapy in our house many many hours all the time and we've also been told that we're the most therapy minded home that a lot of our therapists that we've had in our home over the years have worked with and our big thing is really meeting kids where they are rather than where we think they should be. And that's a really big one. I think I heard Jennifer like, oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, because we're really big on we remove the word should just because you're 11 and you should know how to take a shower doesn't mean you know what shampoo is for. And just because you're 15, you should know how to use silverware. You don't necessarily know. So by meeting them exactly where they are with their skills and abilities, it's also helping them with trauma because then we're not shaming them in in some of these struggles. And then I, I, maybe Lauren and Jennifer will agree, but very often we're working through the next trauma response in points of calm to increase capacity and being able to work through some of those frustration pieces and things along those lines. But I will tell you, being a trauma mama is exhausting on a good day. <laughs> it's it's funny you're talking about the like the should um, thing. Just made me it made me think about because I think even as Adults, like I think should is a word that we use a lot to, uh, you know, in a negative way towards yourself. Well, I should be better at this. I should be able to write. And uh, I had a friend who used to say, stop shooting all over yourself. And I loved that. 
Yeah, I think one of the the biggest things that I've tried to do to help kids with traumas is um, listen to them. I think that a lot of times, especially if kids have been in other foster homes, foster parents may not have, or other people may not have like listened to the story they want to tell um, or about what has happened in their life. Uh, and I think listening to them, giving them the space to talk, and then reacting in a way that's affirming. You know, if the kid is telling you that whatever happened, whatever trauma happened, upset them, affirming that being upset about that is a normal response. And like, it's okay that you feel that way. Yeah, I think I think those are two, two definite things, listening to them and, and just affirming the way that they're feeling um, about what has happened um, and keeping that consistent over time. I, I agree with you, Lauren, that that the affirmation, I think that probably we trauma mamas, like Sarah said, probably deal with that affirmation more than the vast majority of other parents that we're constantly reassuring that, that those feelings are okay. And then try even more trying to identify what those feelings are. Because so many of the kids have, they've never been allowed to feel those feelings. Like you get what you get and you don't get upset, but that upset is okay. And they've never been allowed that space. So they don't know how to, how to feel that feeling. So it's, yeah, it's so important to affirm that. A, A big thing for me is to not try to shield the trauma that they've experienced and to call it what it is. They know what they've been through, at least the the vast majority, like even three and four-year-olds know what has gone on better than I ever could because I wasn't there. So it's so important to not try to gloss over it and to let them have the space to talk about it. Because frankly, a lot of their lives, they're not going to be able to. It's not like they can go to school and sit there in their little group circle and talk about their sexual abuse. So they need to have a safe place to be able to talk those things through. That isn't like they can't just be sitting in therapy seven days a week either, you know. So as trauma families and trauma informed parents, I think we have to recognize that we are their therapy in addition to the therapy. (laughs) <laughs> because the therapy is just a necessity. <laughs> but we we have to allow them time to process because we're, we know them better than their therapists oftentimes. But then we also need to communicate with the therapist and teachers and doctors and workers. If we're all on different levels and we're all thinking different things, then that kid can't heal. That kid needs that consistency to always know what to expect from all of the other adults in his life or her life or their life. And I think that is a really, really big deal that they that they always know what to expect. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important. I mean, especially, you know, in any situation with a kid, but especially in this kind of situation where uh, for everybody to be on the same page, you know, I even, you know, I can't even imagine just in my life trying to be on the same page with the parents of the kids I nanny is hard. And that's only two other people most of the time. (laughs) But yeah, kids, I think definitely need that consistency. 
Hey folks, thanks for joining us for another episode of Bradchild Podcast. So just a couple of quick announcements today. Um, we want to give a big shout out to Mango and Marigold's Press, Literacy Quebec, and author Niasha Williams, who all donated us a bunch of books for the book drive that we ran. Um, we had so many books, in fact, that we needed to run another book drive. <laughs> um, this time we did a local one instead of an international one to give back to the community. Um, so we had a local book drive here in Quebec. Uh, we were able to give lots of books to schools schools and organizations to individuals, refugees, lots of different people. Um, so thank you so much uh, for everybody who participated in that. We do have one giveaway left this month. So we've been doing one giveaway a week and there's one week left in December. So definitely um, check out our social media for information about that. And as usual, definitely check out a kidsbookabout.com where you can find awesome, awesome kids books. I personally have about 10 of them. I love, love, love them. Um, they have all kinds of topics that we cover on the show, um, things like death, things like um, creativity, things like uh, divorce, you know, all those kinds of things like that. They even have a really great one that just came out on white privilege that I got my hands on. That might be my absolute favorite one. Um, they just really you know, talk to kids in a way that I think they can understand. So definitely check those out. Uh, that's again, a kidsbookabout.com. And you can use the code RADCHILD upon checkout to get $5 off. Other than that, it's just the usual stuff. So first of all, we want to give a big shout out to the Upford Network, which is the podcasting network that we're a part of. Definitely check them out. They have lots of awesome shows and they're really committed to creating good, diverse content. Um, so absolutely check us out. You can do that on www.upfordnetwork.com. And as usual, if you would like to follow us on social media, you can do so at Rathchild Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also contact us by either emailing radchildpodcast at gmail.com or going to our website www.radchildpodcast.com under the contact us section. And if you're interested in being a guest, which we're always looking for, you can do that also by going to the contact us section. There's information about how to be a guest there as well. And of course, if you would like to join the ranks of Alex, Kai, Emma, and Sarah, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com forward slash radchildpodcast. And there you can learn about how to contribute a monthly donation, which can be as small as a dollar uh, up to as much as your heart desires. <laughs> really, every little bit counts you know, just getting a little personal. And this is really a passion project for me. I am not in it for the big bucks. Um, but that being said, basically all the costs come out of my pocket. So anything you're able to contribute really, really means a lot to me. And lastly, uh, please, please, if you can, uh, rate and review us on the podcatcher that you listen to us on. So uh, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, we really, really appreciate um, the rates and reviews. They help us kind of get up there in the in the listings and help other people find us. So that really means a lot to us as well. And that's about it. So I'm going to hand it over to Rebecca and Crystal, and then we'll get back to the show. Do you wish more picture books truly reflected your family's values? Have you ever thought you found the perfect book, but when you got it home, it completely missed the mark? Shift Book Box is a picture book subscription service for kids ages 3 to 8, built around themes of social justice and centering diverse characters and creators. Each box features two beautiful picture books as well as expertly crafted discussion guides. We know that families want to engage kids in conversations about social justice topics, and we recognize how challenging it can be to find the right books and to feel supported in having these conversations. We find the books. We provide the prompts, 
you get both delivered to your door. Subscribe today at shiftbookbox.com and use the code RADCHILD. RADCHILD. All one word. RADCHILD. RADCHILD. For 10% off your first order. Shift Bookbox. Curating little libraries. Cultivating big change. So on a little bit of a lighter note, I'd love to hear about, you know, some of the most awesome experiences you've had as a foster parent. So one of the first general things that comes to my mind is milestones. You know, I have a lot of kids with um, significant medical needs. And so when a kid first learns how to walk or say their first word or something like that, which is usually at a much um, older age than kind of a typically developing child, it's very exciting to be there and experience firsts with people is super fun. And second, I would say, which I was surprised about this myself, but it was forming relationships with the family of origin when that's possible. Um, and I, I, that was not something I had expected to do going into foster care, um, but it's something that happened and it was like a really nice surprise. And um, actually our daughter that we have adopted, um, we adopted her because we had fostered her older sister who was reunified and we kept the relationship with the birth mom. And so when she got pregnant again, she contacted us to do a private adoption. And that was just completely unexpected on my part. I never thought that I would have a relationship like that with a birth parent. That's awesome. How special. It's always so nice when it works out that way. Milestones, like Lauren said, milestones, potty training and older kid is incredible. The the little things even are so like when they eat a vegetable for the first time or they call you mom for the first time instead of your name or or a other title or when they this might sound counterintuitive but the first time that they freak out at you because it shows that they feel safe safe enough with you that they can let it all out and that's that's a really big deal. The kid that I have right now had never celebrated any holidays. We celebrate Christmas in our family and Christmas morning was just one of the best moments of my life with them. And it wasn't even my first Christmas with a kid, but because it was her first and she's old enough to comprehend all of it, it was just incredible. Like, all the magic of all of the songs that you hear was wrapped up in their little face. And it was, that was one of the happiest moments of my life. That's awesome. I mentioned earlier that we foster older, older teens now, and we had known this particular little girl for quite some time and we'd done respite for her, which easiest way to describe it is state paid babysitting. And she'd stayed with us overnight and breaks and, and things along those lines. And she came to us to live with us after a tumultuous kind of situation. And she moved in on Friday and on Monday we asked her if she wanted to be adopted. And why this was so important was she had already been in out-of-home care for seven and a half years. 
and we were her fifth or sixth family. And like I said, we'd known her for a couple of years, so we weren't like jumping the gun or anything like that. And by the time we adopted her, she had been in out-of-home care for eight years. And it's like a huge thing because, first of all, around here, people are very surprised when you adopt a teenager. Number two, giving permanency to someone that had been in such a state of limbo for such a long time. Just something that I'll never forget. And I won't forget the look on her face when we asked her if she wanted to be adopted, because honestly, it was just as much her choice as it was ours. Thank you for sharing that. That's so sweet. I don't have any family around here where I live. Actually, Lauren, my family lives outside of Pittsburgh. So when I've gotten to introduce my family to my kids, that is really incredible. Because the family that I still have in my world were, were very close. So to see them being involved, the first time that happened, I took my brother, my son to my brother's wedding and I was like in tears the whole time just watching him interact and be treated like the, like as if he had been part of the family forever and that's that's really precious to me when they get to experience what because I'm a single parent so it's just me and the kids here so when they get to see an extended family all interacting and nobody's using substances nobody's freaking out there's no violence it's just nice. And they get to experience that. And my family gets to experience the kids that I love so much. That's really magical to me as well. Y'all are going to make me tear up. (laughs) I'm going to give you another one too. And it ties into what Lauren uh, said before about working with families of origin. One of our first placements, let's just say the parents of the children in our care weren't super excited about just engaging with us at all. And through patience and understanding and meeting them where they were and really giving them the grace and empathy and understanding that I think they deserved, we got to the point where they sent me a message in the middle of the day. I will always remember I was sitting at the park with one of the kiddos And the text message came through that said, thank you for giving my kids a safe place. And like Lauren, Jennifer, if this has happened, like after you have such, it was so tremulous, like they called CPS on us. Like it was, it was a huge, huge to do before this. So to be able to break through that barrier and all of that fear to have a connection was really, really neat. As we're starting to wrap up here, I'm, I'm curious about uh, folks who may currently be fostering or have fostered kids who maybe are not from the same race or culture as you are. Um, has that like posed any challenges or how, what has that been like? All of the children that we've had have had different races to each other and to us at different points. Um, we've had a lot of bi or triracial children. And one of the kids that was in our care was triracial. And they'd always lived with African-American families. They, they Their racial identity is black, Puerto Rican, and uh, white. And so they'd always identified with the black part of their race. And when they moved in with us, two white women, they were like, how's this going to go? 
And it was actually really interesting and it was far bigger of a challenge than we thought it would be because we had had other African-American children, we'd had Hispanic children, and but for this child to have just three races, she really struggled with identifying and connecting with those pieces. So we had to really go out of our way to help her actually embrace the white side of of her little race triad and explore the Puerto Rican side. And I think that's really unique because for the majority of uh, transracial adoptive parents or foster parents, you're focusing on one race. And in this case, we were focusing on three. And it was really, really interesting. And it was challenging for her. And we actually sought the help of a therapist to kind of help us work through identity pieces and being able to feel safe and really understand how to navigate the world and how to share different different parts of who she was. That's awesome. Yeah, I think it was once I became a foster parent and was started fostering a child of another race that I took a more critical look at at the people that are around me and the places I go and you know just just critical look of like is this are these places inclusive are the places that I'm taking children of different races inclusive and so I think that that uh, really pushed me more to think about where I'm going and make more conscious decisions um, and to really call on different social supports um, and involve maybe more people in uh, the circle of people that are supports for my family and for the children that I'm taking care of. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, it's so I think about it a lot in terms of, you know, both books and resources and things that we're showing kids, but also right, like the people in our lives, like you were saying, in the places that we're going. And I think, you know, it's, it's important to think about what those are reflecting and are those, you know, diverse and are, you know, things like that, I think are really, really important to think about. Lauren, did they have you do the bead exercise in your training? No, I don't know what that is. So the bead exercise, it's really neat. Um, And Lauren, when you were talking, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is an exercise that I did in an anti-racism training. But you take a bowl And you have multicolored beads. And the person who's leading the exercise says, take a bead that represents the people in your family. So if everyone in your family is white, you know, your immediate family, or if there are some people that are black or Hispanic, or and then there are different colored beads for the different races. And then take a bead for your neighbors. Take a bead for your hairstylist. Take a bead for your banker. Take a bead for your coworkers, your best friends, your parents. You know, um, you know. And it goes through. I think something like thirty different things. And when you're done, you look at your bowl, and you quickly realize. And it's actually it's a really big realization, like you were saying, Lauren, of like, whoa, I am very much so surrounded by people that look like me. So it's a really cool exercise. If you've never heard of it, I highly recommend doing it and um, taking a look at yourself. It's 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 cool. In New Hampshire, it's like 97% white. Mm-hmm. So I know I, I moved here from Chicago where it's 
Oh, not that. <laughs> <laughs> but coming from where there's a ton of diversity to where there's no diversity is really challenging for me personally. But then to see all of my children who've seen hardly any people of color, it's difficult to teach them that that's all okay when there really isn't anyone of color around here. But I have had kids, so I can't relate to what you guys are talking about. I've never had a child who isn't white. I have had very homophobic children, though. Probably the majority of my children have been very homophobic. And the kid that I have now, it wasn't even just that they had never experienced it. It was that they had been taught that by the language that they used when I said, like playing with a dollhouse and this one has two mommies and no, that's wrong. That's disgusting. And like went on this whole sermon about uh, how terrible we are for being queer, you know, that we've all heard as queer people, or at least those of us who are queer, (laughs) I should should specify that (laughs) to, to help them learn otherwise. And now that kid is the most prideful little human being. Like she is obsessed with rainbows. Uh, which is like a a giant, that's one of those positive things. There there, there we go. But to try to teach them that what they know, like the philosophies that they know are wrong, sometimes they take that very personally. And I don't know always why. I don't know the psychology behind it, but that's more of been my, that's been my experience more so than the race. Though this same kid was extremely racist. And my actually, my next-door neighbors are from the Middle East. And they're the only people of color that I know anywhere near here. And she was afraid when they would sit out on their porch. I live in a townhouse. She was terrified of them sitting on our shared porch. So to try to teach her through that was challenging. But through the course of more than a year, she's now a huge Black Lives Matter activist as well, which I, that thrills me to pieces. But then every so often you see that glimpse of the past and that's, that's tough. And maybe you guys have more of an idea of how to, how to manage that. When I feel so strongly in the opposite way, it's challenging to meet them where they are, like you you were talking about, Lauren, to meet them where they are when where they are is so morally problematic. It's so different, right? Like I'm I'm coming from the perspective of an educator where like I can I can just skirt those issues when kids say things like that. I could just be like, well, like can't really talk about that at school, talk about it at home. But you know, when you're caring for a child, you can't really do that. You know, I mean I guess you could, um, but it's probably not best practice. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I I can imagine that being really tricky. So uh, as our last question before we sort of start to wrap things up, I'm curious what advice you have for folks who might be considering becoming foster parents after hearing this, you know, awesome episode, all of you talking about these wonderful things. (laughs) So I think a really important thing for people who are interested in becoming foster parents, well, it's, I'm going to have a multi-pointed answer. Number one is to really check yourself as to why. If you think that you're becoming a foster parent because you're going to save a child, <laughs> I've, I've got some pretty strong thoughts on that one, um, but it will, be, it will be a very difficult road for you. And connecting with the children that are in foster care may be a really big struggle for you. 
I would suggest evaluating your support uh, network, both formal and informal supports, to make sure that you're really set up for success because being a trauma parent is really exhausting. And it's a lot more exhausting when you don't have people to help and people to support you with that. And then I think the last part is just as important, and that's to just consume as much content. And I know we're going to talk about resources in a little bit, but consume as much content as you can on trauma, trauma trauma-informed care, and also adoptee perspectives because so much focus is on the savior narrative and the rescue narrative. And what I find really interesting is a lot of adoptees don't feel that way. So I would I would say those three main things. Yeah, snap, Sarah. I, I what you said about the why are you doing it? Um, for sure. I think that uh, a lot of people go into it thinking that they're going to save a child and that a child will be happy just because they're in your home. And um, that's not the case. They're still going to miss, you know, where they came from before you. Um, and so so realizing that's going to be the case is really important. Um, I would also say if you work, uh, have like a regular full-time job, uh, maybe some flexibility, let people know, um, you know, not just those social supports of people around you, but like, you know, professional supports even. Um because you might have to leave work suddenly um, and maybe even even more often than just kind of like a typical child or a birth child. And then lastly, I would say um, consider just like starting slow. Sarah mentioned earlier doing the respite care. <clears throat> And that was how we started doing foster care. So respite is um, usually with foster children, and uh, it's for a shorter period of time. So you might do it for like a weekend or a week or something like that, um, knowing that that child is going to go back to the foster family that they're staying with um, in kind of a limited period of time. Uh, and especially as, as myself, someone who has had um, child children with a lot of medical needs, um, you really do need a break sometimes um, and need that social support. And I think uh, people who do respite foster care can really provide that. This one might be kind of obvious, but establish yourself in therapy because we are experiencing trauma right along with the kids. And it's the trauma of foster care isn't just what people think it is when they leave, because that in itself is indeed traumatic. We also experience that vicarious trauma of them processing their own things, or when they announce randomly on the playground the things that their family member did to them, or like all of all of that stuff we're experiencing vicariously. And that is really traumatic. And it turns out dealing with trauma kids brings up a lot of our own shit. (laughs) And being established with a therapist, not just six months into a case. And you know what? I think I'm going to start some therapy. I think it's crucial that you are already working with a therapist you know you're compatible with that's, that's working really well for you before you dive into the weeds of foster care. But then like like Sarah and Lauren both touched on, having that support system and making sure that even though they're not choosing to be foster parents in a lot of times, 
they're going to be with you and like, like a family member or a friend or, and they're going to lose a lot too when your kids are removed or reunified or whatever. They are also experiencing that loss. I have also lost friends who just couldn't handle the trauma that is foster care. So that's also, that's another challenge. But I think that if a person is wanting to be a foster parent and has that support system, including a therapist, they'll be able to do it. Taking breaks is important also, like, like I think it was Lauren that mentioned it. I try to get out of town every time a child is, um, every time a case is done. And then if it, like the longer cases that I've had, I'll take a break, like months off of foster care. Yeah, I think taking care of yourself is so important. Um, I mean, you know, there's this idea there. Oh, gosh, I can't remember what the book is called. I think it's called fill a bucket or something like that. But it's this idea that like, you can't fill someone else's bucket if your bucket is empty. And I think there's this, uh, you know, there's this important idea of like, we need to be taking care of ourselves in order to take care of other people. And so I think, yeah, it's self care is very important. And you know what, and I think, you know, everybody could just benefit from therapy. Therapy's great. Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, So as we uh, start to wind down a little bit, do you have any resources about this topic for either kids or adults, the books, shows, websites, anything you can think of? Yes. So I'm going to keep it brief to just a few. So I'm a big fan of TBRI, so Trust-Based Relational Intervention with Dr. Karen Purvis. And a good book for that is The Connected Child. So that's a good book to read about parenting children of trauma. Also, The Explosive Child with the Plan B approach, which is really great. And then honestly, anything by Dr. Dan Siegel. So that's going to be uh, The Yes Brain, uh, The Whole Brain Child, uh, The Power of Showing Up. And uh, Mindsight is actually the brain science behind those books. There's another one, but I'm spacing on it. So those are all books that I absolutely love. And then a podcast that I really like is The Adoptee Next Door. And it's Angela Tucker. She has a website. She has a Facebook. She has an Instagram. And now she has this podcast that's uh, it's, it's relatively new. But she's interviewing other adoptees about their perspective. And what I like is she definitely has her idea of how things should go, but she allows her uh, the guests on her show to kind of challenge that and really engage. So those are going to be the big ones. That's like my starter pack. Wow, those are all really good <laughs> recommendations. Um, the couple that I have are, these are two kids books. One's called The Family Book and one's called We Are Family. And those are, are two just family books that are not specifically about foster care, but just about um, diverse families in general. As we've all kind of mentioned, there's a lot of intersectionality, I think, in our families among races, um, queerness, things like that. And so um, I think those two books kind of put a lot of that stuff in there and just kind of normalize that a lot. Another book that I read at the very beginning of the foster care journey is called Another Place at the Table. 
And it's like a memoir um, type of book, you know, kind of like a fun, fun reading um, book, but it's about a a family who were foster parents and just um, what their experiences were like with that. And I think that um, there were definitely pieces of the book that were interesting and inspiring to me um, back then. For kids books, I really like the one Maybe Days. Oh my gosh, I am obsessed with it. It was a psychologist, though. Who wrote it and I have found that my kids really cling to it and it just it isn't a story it's just a breakdown of uncertainty and they they really relate to it and they sometimes even read it to each other which is just the cutest thing ever <laughs> more grown-up books the body keeps the score I really that has a lot of really good information in it and along kind of along that same line, the movie Resilience. I don't know if you guys have ever um, watched that. It's about ACEs, but that's kind of the first time that I watched that was when I was introduced to ACEs and the way that our bodies handle traumatic experiences and toxic stress. And that has been, I've relied on that movie many times since watching it even before I became a foster parent. But then kind of a, not so much a resource, but just a, being able to relate the the show, The Fosters. I love that show so much. <laughs> but when, I, truthfully, I had never watched it until maybe like a year ago. I started binging it and it. I didn't realize what a loss it was to not have anyone, a family that looked like mine, not just the fact that I'm queer, but also that I'm a foster parent. And I felt like it was, kind of cheesy at times, but they did a good oh, yeah. job <laughs> showing the, some of the, the stuff, the suck. They showed the suck of foster care. And I, I've really, I recommend that show to everybody now, I think. Yeah. So also, also great for a lot of reasons. There are also two trans characters in that show played by trans actors, which is just another, that's what we should be doing. So that's always good. But then there are, I think local resources are really important as well. I'm on the, our local foster parent association. That's that's more maybe a support than an actual learning resource, but it also provides mentorship. And like I could talk to you guys all day long, but until you know the the New Hampshire system, it's not the same, you know. So I can learn from you guys some stuff, but the system itself varies so much. Even within states, it varies. So it, I think it's really important to also have local mentors or um, just general learning resources that you can sh- shoot an email to and say, hey, can you help me with blah, blah, blah? Or OMG, do you hate this worker too? Because I cannot effing stand her. <laughs> oh my gosh. Amazing. My last question is just, do you have any uh, personal projects or work or anything that you would like to plug and or where can people find you on the internet if you would like to be found? Absolutely. So as I mentioned pretty early on, I'm a parent coach that works with parents of kids in foster care. And I was certified through the Parent Coach Institute. And I generally work in the greater Milwaukee area. However, I do do work virtually. So I've worked with people all across the country. My website is thefosterlane.com. And then you can also find me the Foster Lane on Facebook and Instagram. My 
full-time job is as a uh, sex therapist and health educator. And so if anyone wants to find me on Instagram, it's the sex positive therapist. Um, And I do post resources for families. And if anybody has any questions about those um, difficult conversations with children around sex, I'm definitely open to discussing. I work, I run a domestic violence shelter. So to be super honest, I try not to share my last name. Really? That's totally fair. I want to share sometimes, but I feel like it wouldn't be wise. We have people come to our violence, our crisis center and, and want to find us and so, um, yeah, people don't like it when you advocate against violence sometimes. So. Well, thank you for doing that work because that's important work for sure. Thank you all so much for being here. It was such a pleasure. And remember, stay rad. I'm Tom Zalatni, executive producer of the Upford Network and host and producer of Up for Discussion, a podcast about great food and the people who love to make and eat it. But wait, isn't Up for Discussion a comedy podcast? It sure was, but things change. It's a food show now, and it's a very, very good food show. Every week, I dig into a different ingredient, dish, meal, or cuisine with help from friends and guest experts who know way more about this stuff than I do. Do you like food? Of course you do. You're a person. So you will like this show. Go listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Up for discussion. It's a food podcast now. Brought to you by the Upford Network. Hi there. I'm Nick Hughes, the son. And I am James Hughes, the father. Together, we co-host Canada's Young Leaders, a podcast exploring bold ideas for our country's future. Our third and final season focuses specifically on climate change, how we got here, and where we need to go. We'll be speaking with young environmental leaders about the roles of governments, corporations, and individuals in combating this crisis, and also thinking about the role of the COVID-19 pandemic in the climate movement. So, if you're someone who is concerned about climate change and wants to learn more, check out Canada's Young Leaders, a very proud member of the Upford Network.